The tradition of my teacher, he actually trained in two traditions, but the stream I feel most close to is the Shangpukagyu. And that tradition was never monasticized, so it has a different feel to it. And the way that teachers would teach is, you know, a small group of practitioners meeting. I think I referenced this on the first night, hillside somewhere. What they would do is they would stay in caves, you know, and then caves are pretty awful. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever stayed in one. (laughs) Maybe not if it's a man cave, but, you know, (laughs) they're bad. (laughs) And then they would come down, they would meet like full moon somewhere, and they would do a ritual feast called a sok, T-S-O-K, which means gathering together. And I haven't done many soaks, maybe, I don't know, a few hundred. They're little, little feasts, sometimes big feasts. But when I envision what people did in the early days, I think they came out of their caves, maybe they set their things out on the rocks to dry finally, the mold would recede a little bit. They would come down the mountain into the valley, and they would meet in a place, and they would have this ritual feast. And I asked a friend of mine once, who's translator and familiar with ancient literature, you know, what did they do at their feast? I know what we did at ours, but what did they do? And he said, well, they had meal, ritual meal, right? So they invoked Uh, as we did at the beginning of the retreat, they invited everyone. It wasn't a potluck, it was a buffet. (laughs) They invited everyone, and they shared whatever they had. So maybe you had a potato and you brought that down, you know, simple maybe. Or maybe some days it was grand because benefactors came and left offerings. And they did practice together, and my friend said it was a kind of time of reminder. Why do we do this? Why is this important? Because you can sit, you know this, right? You can sit on your cushion at home and forget. Why do I do this? And it's important in practice to stay connected to the rest of everything. So I said they'd do that, and then also there was a piece of the soak ceremony where they would say, you know, I thought bad things about you while I was up there. <laughs> I'm sorry. So, And maybe, you know, like here when they do the confession, you just, there's big drum, maybe you say it all out loud, so you don't really hear. But you get it off your chest. And there's a kind of relief in that, isn't there, when we just own up to being human. And they would enjoy each other, and they would ask each other Dharma questions, and then kind of nourished, they would go back to practice for another month until the next full moon. And when teachers came, the teachers would come from far and they walked. (laughs) So I always think that would be good for me, I should do this. (laughs) But they would teach and they would teach for a few days. So a lot of talk. And so I have a very good elder Zen Dharma brother who says always, you Vajrayana people talk too much. (laughs) 
And it's true, we do. So what I want to say, I'm about to give one of those, not, you know, it won't go on for days, not even really hours, but I'm about to do a lot of talking. And I want to say, and I think people knew this in the olden days, this is something that you're not meant to remember all of this. It's not like that. You're meant to let it soak into your heart, and then as you need it, it will unfold for you. So it's an offering, so you can just be gentle about hearing all this talk. So if you read the marketing <laughs> for this retreat and this offering, you read that it would be based in part on a text written in the 1300s. That's very old. By a Nyingma teacher named Longchenpa. And that text actually comes out in three volumes. And this is the third of the three volumes, and it's called Resting in Illusion. Resting in Illusion. And the text is about how we relate to all of our experience in this life as practitioners. And I think Long Chenfa, I wish I could go back in time and meet him. I may try to invoke him someday in my practice and see because he taught in some ways so esoteric, but that was the language of the time. But also he was very pragmatic. So he started out by saying, you know, that he called them the eight Vajra points. There are eight kinds of illusions. And each one of these kinds of illusions was chosen, this is such good pedagogy, to show a different aspect of illusions. And so what he said is, these are not all the illusions. The biggest illusion, the grandmother illusion of all of them, I think, is that I believe that I'm separate from everything else and I exist in here and all of my experiences out there. And therefore, if I really am fooled by that illusion, I will think I can own people. I can sell people. I can enslave people. I can cause them to work 60-hour weeks for very little pay. I can other them because they're slightest bit different than me. That's a sad illusion. It's the illusion that causes the pollution of global warming. Josen Roshi and I were talking the other day, and she was saying that one of her teachers said, the worst pollution is mind pollution. Isn't that true? It's because of pollution of mind that we can pollute the earth. It's because we think we are not this earth that when we harm the earth, we don't know. So Longchenpa said, oh, that's not the only illusion. There's lots of illusions. The first is dreams. Yeah, you know about that illusion, right? I know all of these. <laughs> Magic tricks, I've been fooled by all of these, sometimes to my delight. Tricks of sight. Now, I had to think, what is a trick of sight? And then I thought, oh, yeah, my kids sent me something once on social media. If you look at it and you're supposed to see, do you see an old lady or something else? Right? So there's that one. And so then I wrote my firstborn and I said, what do you think a trick of sight is? And he said, oh, I used to do one when I was little. I would press my eyes really hard like this. And I would look at the moon and there would be two moons. So it's not true, but very convincing, right? And you made it happen. So confusing, maybe. And then there are mirages. And I think in this tradition here, so famous, the moon's reflection on water. Anything's reflection in anything. 
and echoes, which I got really excited about. I thought, I was remembering last week, whoo, I had a lot of echoes. <laughs> I would say something and then it would come back to me, back to me, back to me, back to me, as though it was real. And then castles in the clouds. Well, I was kind of a shy kid when I was little and I went to school when I was five because we didn't have kindergarten. So I used to lay in the grass and look at the clouds because I was too shy to play with anybody and I didn't like commotion. I liked stillness. I saw everything in the clouds, dragons, castles, and it was really so wonderful. And then I have to tell you, maybe you'll know what this one is, emanated apparitions. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> After retreat, and you're not allowed before retreat, but Google that, would you, and come find me, tell me what it is. All right. Yeah. Roshi and I were having a talk. I was having a talk last week with a friend of mine named Ken McLeod. And he said, I don't use the word illusion. He's a translator by trade, you know, so very picky about words and good with words. And I said, why not? And he said, I use apparition. Now let's see if I can remember why. Because an illusion you create, like a magic trick. And you say, ah, it's a magic trick. And we, and we might be fooled by it, kind of, you know, if we see somebody else's. Maybe I see yours and I'm a little fooled. Maybe I love that. But he said apparitions arise on their own. So we're tricked. You just get up in the morning and it's there. These are the kinds of illusions that we were born into. I was born in this country, and even though I was born in a very rural kind of, uh, some people would say backwards place, not how... I experienced it, but very real place. We thought that we were better than the family down the road. And my dad used to say, you know, we're Hasses, we're better than the Woodies. They also came out from North Carolina in the 40s. We we're pretty the same, I think. And he would say, but you know, the Woodies, they're better than the Dockeries down the road. And I don't remember the order of these families, but I was only five. And then he would say, but the Dockeries, you know, those are better than the people in town. And the people in Cottage Grove are better than the people in the big city of Eugene. And God only knows what people in other places are like. I think that was illusion. I think he believed it. So Long Chempa says, you know, most of what we experience actually is like that. We should take a look at this. So it's okay to have an illusion, but it causes suffering to not know that it's, it's an illusion. All right, so I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about echoes, and I didn't want to tell you my personal echoes because they're kind of embarrassing. I confessed them already last week. <laughs> but I was thinking, you know, I used to rock climb, so I was imagining being in Boulder Canyon. And as you can tell, I'm a kind of, I'm not exactly rainbows and unicorns. I'm pretty practical, but, but I do feel a lot of love for the world. And so I imagine being in Boulder Canyon, standing out there and yelling, I love you, <laughs> because I did love that place, right? And then I imagined it would come back. I love you, 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 I love you. And I could imagine if that happened, the person would think, 
He would have this experience. All of this environment loves me. And you would feel so good. And that's not, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Because it means that you're piercing the illusion of separateness in a way. But I was also thinking, well, my echoes kind of went amok. So could this go amok? And I was imagining that maybe you get home and you think, oh, those mountains love me. And probably the ocean loves me too. And the sky and the earth. And it went on like that. And then one day, it was a faint memory that you ever had that experience. And you were waiting to hear it again. But because you never said it, it was never reflected back to you in your experience. And so, I don't know, I was married for 25 years. I think I did that to my husband. (laughs) I'm waiting for you to tell me you love me. (laughs) I shouldn't have to tell you. (laughs) You should just say. So then I imagine the person, you know, you go out to the mountains and you wait for the mountains to tell you because you have a little pride. This is where the illusion stuff gets tricky. And you think maybe it used to be that you would say that on your own. I'm waiting for you. You're not doing that anymore. And I shouldn't have to say it first. You go first. Of course, mountains don't say anything. And so maybe you sit there all day and right at night when you put on your headlamp and you're ready to walk down and you think, I don't love you anymore. And you shout it out. (laughs) What happens? It's reflected back to you. I don't love you anymore. 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 That's illusion. But imagine, I could go a long ways with that. Like, oh, environment doesn't love me anymore. That's not so bad. But where do you go with that? What do you do with that? Do you log it? Do you burn it down? Do you change the policies around the streams? What do you do? That's just one illusion. So I thought a lot working on understanding Longchenpa's teachings. And one thing that he didn't talk about, and I'm surprised because it's all over Tibetan literature, was rainbows. They play a big role. And if you've ever been to Tibet, you know why. Because at 14, 15, 16, 18, 20,000 feet, the air is so clear that it's Kodachrome blue. And because of the glaciers and the thing, it's just a prime condition for rainbows. And so they appear a lot in our classic literature. And so I thought about rainbows, and I thought, rainbow definitely, I went back and read the, you know, Longchenpa's list of eight characteristics of an illusion. <laughs> you can check it out for yourself in the book. And I thought, yep, rainbow's definitely an illusion. Why? Why am I not attached to rainbows? And I thought, well, because everybody knows. You know, if you're more than five years old, you know that a rainbow isn't real. A rainbow is, and I don't think when I was a kid I would have said an illusion, but I knew, even as a child, that, and I think I tried maybe twice, to chase a rainbow. You can't get it and put it in your pocket. You can't put it in your backpack. And so you either learn that because your context growing up teaches you that, your schools, your religion, your society, or you learn it because you chased a few rainbows and you think, I got so kind of close, but it kept moving away. And then maybe you talk to somebody and they told you 
You know, they said rainbows are illusory phenomena. Now I'm going to channel Chosen Roshi for a minute, so I've learned half the science I know from her. Because a rainbow is an illusory phenomena that occurs when sunlight hits a raindrop and some of the light is reflected. And since the electromagnetic spectrum is made of light with many different wavelengths, each is reflected at a different angle, and the spectrum is separated, and we call that experience a rainbow. That's the key thing. A rainbow is illusory phenomena, which means it appears clearly in your experience, but it's not a thing. It's not a thing. So the reason that we don't get attached to rainbows, we, I was thinking, have I ever said to myself, I'm going to get that rainbow because I've had a hard week and I really deserve one of those? Or did I ever drive by one and think, well, Usha's got a rainbow. I think I should be having a rainbow. Or, you know, I finally got my master's degree. Now's the time for a rainbow. I never thought like that about rainbows because I knew they couldn't be grasped, owned. So, in that case, I knew the difference between illusion and truth. And so then I thought, well, how do I feel about rainbows? I lived here at the monastery for a year, delightful year. There were rainbows all the time around this place. And I can remember people saying, hey, 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 there's a rainbow, there's a rainbow. Everybody, come outside, come outside. Look at this. Now you would think if something beautiful and magical was going to just disappear right under your nose that you'd be sad. I once fell in love with someone. They were beautiful and magical. And when they disappeared, I was so sad. I was angry. I remember. Why? Because I didn't know they were part of the great flow of things that change. And so it broke my heart. But when a rainbow disappears, when my mother died, there were rainbows over the freeway. I said, Ma, give me a sign. I just need to know you're okay. Woo, two double rainbows over the freeway as I drove out of town. <laughs> Good job, Mom. <laughs> Overperforming, as always. <laughs> Why stop when you're 85 and dead? <laughs> I mean that in the best way. She was, she was good. But when they went away, I felt a slight wisp of ennui. You know, just like, oh, oh, bye, mom's rainbows, bye. But I wasn't heartbroken, and I definitely wasn't angry. But let's take another piece of illusory phenomena. How about uh, insert the thing that you want, you know? A car, a house, a degree, beauty, intelligence, the perfect prince or princess charming or, or non-binary charming, as my children say. Mom, will you please say non-binary charming? All right, that too. So I do, I have in my life thought, I deserve that. I should have that. I've worked hard. I should get it. And in the process of fantasizing like that, I forget that it's illusory. I forget that it will arise, abide, and continuously change. 
And you can say, well, everybody knows that about relationships. And I want to tell you, as a Lama, I talk to people all the time who say, we've been married for 30 years and you are not the person I married. Mm -hmm. And I think, well, yeah, that's true. Isn't that kind of exciting in a way? <laughs> you know? But no, no, I liked you the way you were. I wanted you to be that way. So we get in those kind of jams because we don't understand the illusory nature of reality. One of the things that makes illusion, and I think Ken was talking about this when he said apparitions, you know, arising, that makes it difficult to recognize as illusion is that it's clearly appearing. When I wake up in the morning and there's onchin, well, not in the morning, but after tea, no, there's onchin, and I don't think he's a rainbow. You know, he's illusory. I don't think like that. He's constantly changing. He's vaporous. I don't think like that. I think, oh, it's onchin. That's a thing. That's a solid being over there. I was trying to think, what have other people said about illusory things? And I thought, oh, I think it was, was it Janis Joplin that said, it's, it's a happening? Doesn't that sound like something she'd say? Like a rainbow is a process. So is a human being. So is a human being, but it's hard to remember that. We are a temporary experience, a temporary flow, a temporary and sparkling expression of divine energy. The thing, so I was trying to think, where is the suffering? Like, where do we tilt into suffering? And I thought it's because with rainbows, for example, no suffering, because we are open to their transience. We are open to the fact that they are clearly appearing but empty, as we say in Buddhism. Then I was thinking about dying because I did hospice for my mom for four months after I left here and she died and she's only 16 years older than me. So, you know, it's pretty intimate experience. And I thought, I wish I had thought when my mother was dying, she's a rainbow. She just came into being and she sparkled. And then she went back into the great field of emptiness. There's no suffering, a sense, maybe longing, yearning, maybe those things, but different than thinking. This is my mom, she's supposed to live forever. So, you know, in the Vajrayana, we have a way of learning to be with illusory phenomena. I love these practices. They're called sadhanas. I think we borrowed that word from Indian traditions. So what we do is, let's talk about uh, Avalokiteshvara, since you've said that maybe in, in a chant while you're here. This is the emanation of enlightened mind. So we sit down and we do rituals like I did this morning, offerings and, you know, that sort of thing. 
And then we visualize a seed syllable in vast emptiness. So like the vast ocean of potential, which I call emptiness. And we say a, a seed syllable appears. Why? Because I thought. I thought that. It came from mind. So we do this with intention now. We're going to create an illusory experience. And then that seed syllable, I say, Chenrezig, come here. Avalokiteshvara, compassion, come here, appears. Well, because I visualized it. I manifested that. Or at least I held the intention for it to manifest, and it did. That's a big teaching when you see that. Where I put my intention, things happen. Then I also manifest as the embodiment of compassion. And there we are, bodies of light. And we do all the things that people do in their life. We say hello, we say where are your friends. This is all very ritualized, very formal speech, you know, musical. Hello, where are your friends? It's good to see you. You look different than the last time I saw you, yet something is the same. I make offerings to you, we do all those things. And then we say, all right, time to go. And we dissolve the visualizations back into emptiness. And this is practice for dying. This is how we get to know the process of how everything is born, sparkles, and dies. And I think that this is an exercise designed by the Indians and the Tibetans to help us get familiar with that aspect of mind. When I think about practices like Chenrezig, I just do a handful, kind of simple practitioner. But I think I love those practices. It is oddly satisfying to be born, to live, and to die and feel just fine about that. Imagine that kind of openness. And I thought, I was very skeptical when I started practicing Vajrayana practices, sadhana practices. I thought, what good could it do? You just visualize this imaginary friend, you know. I really didn't understand what I was doing. Visualize this imaginary friend, and they're here, then you do some stuff, and then you unvisualize them. I thought, this will never do anything. But I did it because I had faith in my teacher. And I thought, he's the most compassionate person I know. So if it worked for him, I'm going to give it 10 years. If it doesn't work, it's out of here. We did it and did it and did it and did it and did it. And I can't say that that practice made a difference. I don't really know. It's more mysterious than that. But little by little by little, I thought, I should be careful what I do with my mind, my intention, where I put my awareness, my speech, they have impact in the world. So I think maybe it's possible that came from the practice and other practices. You don't have to do Vajrayana practices to have the experience of things arising from emptiness abiding or sparkling, as I like to say, and then dissolving back into emptiness. We've been doing it since you got here on retreat. 
You sit in meditation. Maybe you rest awareness on the breath and you relax and you open. And then you just see what shows up. Thoughts, memories, sensations, sounds, taste, touch, smell. Awareness itself shows up. And you just watch those things. And as you watch, you learn about the nature of phenomena and the nature of mind. That things arise and they flow through and they disappear. And even in meditation, if we cling, there's suffering there. Right? I have a way of thinking about this and it's very metaphorical or maybe poetic or something, but I feel when something arises in meditation, it is saying, know me. I have something to teach you. Know me. And so I think, all right, I offer you my attention. I don't try to understand it. It's much simpler than that. Just put awareness there. And I don't think the teachings come in words. I don't even pretend to know how they accumulate or what really happens. But I believe that that's how... I believe that that's one way and maybe the most important way to learn. And then if we get some experience in that in meditation, we can get off the cushion like you did for gardening or chopping vegetables. And we can try, you know, maybe you're chopping vegetables and the knife is not so sharp and you feel a little irritation, you know, ah. And then you think, oh, and you just momentarily, you rest your awareness there. That feeling is there, but you don't pour gas on it. You know, ah, that's just a feeling. And so you don't pour any fuel on it and it just goes, gives you its teaching and then it dissolves back into emptiness. That's how I think of it. The other thing I thought about rainbows, and I think it's a teaching of rainbows, and it would be a teaching for everything if I was paying attention. And that's that when I look at a rainbow, I see the sun and time and clouds and sky. Some days I see a little pollution in there, you know. It's like everything kind of is there. Sort of what Chosen was saying with the olives, right? I was thinking when I went back to my room, I was thinking, wow, that olive, if we backed that all the way up, which might take a month or so, everything would be in that olive, everything. So it's a teaching on interconnectedness. And I thought, yeah, rainbows are like that. All right, one more thread, and this is cautionary. To say that things clearly appear but are empty, must never be understood as they don't exist. To say that something is empty must never be understood as they don't exist, or we could say they're not real. We have to be really careful with that word, real. I asked a teacher early on, you know, is... uh, Let's say, I don't remember the idiom, but let's say, is green Tara real? And she said, she knows she's not. That was a good answer. <laughs> that was really good. So it doesn't mean that nothing is real. 
things are there. Let's say you're out walking in the field and you see a piece of rope lying in the grass and you think, snake, you know, and your whole body responds to that, right? And then you look a little closer, maybe you put your glasses on and you realize, oh, it's not a snake, <laughs> it's a rope. So it's not that the rope wasn't real, it's that you misunderstood its nature. And then look at the cost of misunderstanding. We build a reactive structure. And if we misunderstand something very fundamental, like our interconnectedness, that's how we end up with places, I think, like other isms. We build policies and we solidify it. We solidify it into art and music and literature and educational systems. And, you know, it's because we have misunderstood some very important truth. This is why in meditation it's so important. We don't sit there and think. We, we do sometimes. <laughs> I confess. We do. But best case, we don't sit there and think. We sit there and go down, 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 under, before all those layers of construct. And we know the truth, which is not conceptual truth, but the truth that can be seen by a still mind and be experienced, where wisdom recognizes wisdom. So it's not tainted with the confusion of conceptual truth. So what that means, and I think it's important to say it in a time like this, it's not okay, not helpful, to say, well, all those people that don't get vaccines, they're just illusory. So I don't really care if they make it or not. We are the first beneficiary of that thought. We are the first to be poisoned by that confusion. Somebody asked my teacher's teacher, Kala Shea, once, if I have a dream and in the dream a man is hungry, should I feed him? And the translator went back and forth a little bit, you know, and Rimshe was like, why are you asking this? <laughs> and he said, well, it's a dream, you know, man. should I feed him? Does it matter? And Kala Rinpoche said, absolutely feed him in the dream. So I don't want to explain my understanding of that because I think you can arrive at your own powerful understanding. Why would you feed the beings in a dream if it's only an illusion? In challenging times, and I talked to Roshi about this last week, we're meant to be in touch with emptiness and the illusory, clearly appearing but empty, you know, the nature of things. And we're also meant in every moment to help and to love and to support and to cultivate those qualities in mind. So I just think it's important to not go down. You know, there's in the Tibetan system we say there are near enemies of practice. This is the near enemy of working correctly with illusion. You almost got it, but you hit the first major pothole. <laughs>
We know when we're doing the right thing if what we do, not if society says that it's right, right speech, right, you know, not because the, the culture around me says that it's right, but does it lead away from suffering? Or does it lead me deeper into suffering? And the only way that we can know that is to be awake moment by moment. And as Hogan Roshi is so diligent about pointing out, it can't work in our Buddhist practice to have fixed beliefs, to say it is always this way. It can't work. So in the relative world, in this ordinary, everyday world. It has to be right now, right now, right now, right now, which is the other reason that we practice meditation. And something that I very much appreciated hearing over and over and over when I lived here, over and over. That's one of those long Vajrayana talks, <laughs> and I feel like we should have a feast right now, and <laughs> we should light lamps, and we should talk to each other and forgive ourselves for thoughts that we had that were harmful, and we should let go of all of the illusion, oh, I'm not a good practitioner, I'm not, you know, all of that. Just wipe the slate clean, start fresh, finish our retreat, and think, how precious is it that you are here doing this? How precious is that? How many thousand things had to come together in your good karma for a retreat to happen? Chosen and Hogan had to practice for a hundred years. <laughs> I had to practice, I'm just a beginner, 30 years. I had to practice, somebody had to build this place. Somebody had to build this elementary school. I mean, start, this is the olive exercise that she gave you at lunch, right? See, all of the things, it's almost impossible that you could come to retreat. And yet here you are, and you made that happen, along with everything else. So we should rejoice in that. It's extraordinary good fortune, cause for celebration.